If you uh, brought your Bibles with you this morning, let me invite you to turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 3. We were in this chapter two weeks ago, and we continue on this morning. The uh, passage for our sermon is also in your bulletin or uh, page 1016 of those blue Bibles that are in front of you. One of the major concerns, as we've seen already in this letter that Peter has written, was to try to help the church, all of us, particularly the folks to whom he was writing at this point, who are living as exiles and as sojourners in this world to know how we ought to think about, how we ought to conduct ourselves in the face of what for them was at the time increasing suffering, increasing persecution, increasing insults from the surrounding society that would soon, in their case, turn into full-blown persecution in the Roman Empire for their faith. What are we supposed to think? What are we supposed to do in those circumstances? We are right in the middle of Peter's answer to that in our passage today. He just has exhorted us to good behavior and good speech in the section that preceded us, and he told us in verse 12, right before what I'm going to read for us, he told us this, For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayer, but the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. The face of the Lord is against those who do evil, but what is patently obvious to the people of that day, and what is obvious to us as well, verse 12, even the face of the Lord being turned against those who do evil, verse 12 does not mean, therefore, nothing wrong is going to happen in our lives, that we will always enjoy perfect prosperity, perfect peace now, no suffering, no one saying anything bad against us now. It doesn't mean that. Peter is writing to us so that we, as the people of God, would hold two horizons in our minds and in our practice at the same time. The first is the present. We live in the right now. We have to act, we have to speak, we have to have our feeling in our lives and move and have our being in our lives right now. But the horizon that he's looking at as well is the horizon of eternity. What's out there? What's waiting for us? What has God promised? What is the inheritance that is secured out here? And he's trying to say that the only way to actually live well now in the midst of the persecution is for you to keep your eyes on this coming inheritance. There is a day coming when all of the suffering will be eliminated and all of the right wrongs will be righted and all of those who hate the Lord and practice evil will in fact receive their due, but that day is not this day. That day is not this day. And so now, now, in the midst of it, how are we to live as the people of God? So hear the living word of the living God. I'll read these verses for us. Now, who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, 
So that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. There is, as the writer of Ecclesiastes says to us, a time to keep silence and a time to speak. Lord, we pray that you would help us, your people living today, living here, living in this world, this culture, to be able to hear these eternal words and apply them appropriately to our own lives. Spirit of God, author of these words through your servant Peter, minister to us now, we ask in Jesus' name, amen. Sometimes when uh, I'm reading various books in preparation for uh, any one particular sermon in preparation for the preaching, I realize that I can't say something better than the author whom I just read and the way that they say it, and therefore, as a result, I'm very careful about what I read. I won't allow Lauren, for example, to read me Spurgeon, because if I hear Spurgeon, I'm going to think, I can't say it better than Spurgeon said, so I'm very careful. But every once in a while, nevertheless, in my carefulness, there are people who say things so well that I have to just quote him. Joel Green describes Peter's letter and this section in particular that I've read for us as a recalibration of the universe. And I thought, that's a, that's a really good phrase. A recalibration of the universe. And that Peter, in writing to, uh, to them, to us, in preaching to us, is really preaching for, and again, this is a quote from him, he's preaching for a conversion of the imagination, a conversion of the imagination. Our natural thinking, of course, when we consider suffering, when we consider especially suffering for righteousness' sake or suffering because you've tried to do that which is good, is that this is awful. It's awful. It's awful to suffer. No one wants to suffer. Maybe it's a, a sign of, uh, of divine disapproval or, I don't know, divine disinterest, or a, a, a divine saying, well, you know, you're on your own with this when you guys figure it out the best you can, or is it a signal of divine impotence, an inability to correct a particular situation? And there's temptations that then go along with this when we're suffering, when we're suffering and we're facing these things and we're facing these thoughts and we're, we're trying to do good but we're suffering anyway, there's a temptation when you're doing that just to kind of give up, just to kind of back out of a situation and say, you know what, I tried to do good, I tried to do what was right, I tried to help people here, it wouldn't work out and we can just give up. We can just back off and say, I'm not going to do that again. I tried that a time before, it didn't work out, I'm out of here. I'm not, I'm not engaging in this anymore. Leave me alone. I've done my part. I tried. I can't help the world. And you back off from that. There's another temptation when you're suffering for doing that which is good. And I've articulated this one because it's one that's personal to me. There's another temptation, and that is to lash out. If, if someone is persecuting you for doing that which is good, in some of us, I recognize that some have different internal dispositions with it. There's also a temptation to want to take that person and body slam that person. You are persecuting me and hindering me from doing that which is good. That's it. That's it. 
let's go, let's, let's rumble right now. Because what, what I would say is, listen, the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. That's the preceding phrase that comes right before this, quoting it out of Psalm 34. The face of the Lord is against those who do evil. I'm for the Lord. The face of the Lord is against those who do evil. It's time for the body slam to take place. Because that's what God says. Edmund Clowney, another one that I read or read in preparation for uh, this series, says that this section and that which precedes it and that which follows it, the problem is in fact turned upside down. Christians are not God's instrument for present vindication. Instead, and here's now quoting from Clowney, suffering has become an opportunity to meet evil with good and cursing with blessing. That's the divine strategy. That goes against natural impulse. Right? It's the divine strategy, but it's a hard strategy. But it's the witness that God is calling us to in these passages. This recalibration of the universe, this conversion of the imagination. All of it is taking place in light of, in the shadow of, the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. In Jesus and in his cross, suffering, suffering for doing that which is good, suffering for doing that which is righteous, or for righteousness sake, as it says in our passage, is the very means of our salvation. In Jesus, suffering and those who suffer are in fact blessed. Blessed. Nehemiah said it in the Old Testament this way in a verse that I've testified that I've loved over the course of many years. Nehemiah says, our God turned the curse into a blessing. And that is most fully seen and sealed in the suffering and in the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Everything about the cross screamed out, curse. Right? That's what the word of God says. Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. And our God took the curse. The Lord Jesus hung on the cross the very image and reality of cursing. And he turned it into a blessing. And Peter is once again as he has already done in this letter, saying to us, that's your blueprint. That's your blueprint for how you walk in this world. Now, there are a number of ways that we could look at the text that is before us today. I have chosen to kind of take us through it, to to walk us through by, by looking at the way Peter encourages us in the use of four faculties four abilities, four aspects of our humanity that he instructs one after another. So what he's first going to do is instruct us in behavior, what we do. Then he's going to look at our heart and instruct our hearts. And then he's going to once again turn to our speech. And then the last faculty he's going to come to is our conscience. And you'll see it. It, it just, it's right there. You might not catch it on the first reading. You'll see it clearly as I walk us through these things. Peter continues to exhort us, okay, how do you recalibrate? How do you recalibrate your views? How do you engage each one of these faculties in a way that is according to the word of God? All right, behavior is where he begins the exhortation once again using his and Paul's 
favorite phraseology to describe for us what you're supposed to do. There's no ambiguity for Peter in what, or for Paul for that matter, in what we are to do. You see it in verse 13, zealous for what is good. We are to be people who are zealous for what is good. In verse 16, it reads this way, uh, those who revile you for your good behavior. Good behavior. Behavior here is a word we've seen already in 1 Peter several times. It's the same word that is sometimes translated conduct earlier. So in, in your good conduct, in what you're doing, honor the Lord. Verse 17. Verse 17, it's better to suffer for doing good. So do good and don't do evil. That is, this is not the first time in this letter that we have seen this exhortation. And I'm just going to go through them real quickly just to show you how ubiquitous this exhortation is. It's, it's really something whereby Peter is saying, listen, please don't miss this. And so he says it over and over again. Chapter 2, verse 12. Keep your conduct, your behavior, same word uh, that we're looking at, among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds. Chapter 2, verse 15. For this is the will of God that by doing good. Chapter 2, verse 20. If when you do good and suffer for. Chapter 3, verse 1, speaks about the conduct, again, the behavior of wives of unbelieving husbands. Chapter 3, verse 6, says if you want to be the children of Sarah, then do that which is good. And then just up above here in chapter 3, verse 11, two verses before where we started, let him turn away from evil and do good. Peter's assumption and Peter's command, like Paul, is that those who are in Christ are zealous for good works, are rich in good works, are devoted to good works. That's, I'm using Pauline phraseology there for all of those terms. So let's take just a, a sermonic pause right here. That's the, that's the command that comes from Peter and Paul repeated multiple times and asked this question, are you that? That's the behavior that is commanded, that is required. Are you zealous for doing good? Are we devoted to doing that which is good? Now, Peter, in our section here, is particularly concerned with the result of this good behavior. What's the impact of it? If for every action there is an equal and opposite reaction, well, then what's the reaction to doing that which is good? If you say, okay, I'm going to take up the mission, I'm going to do that which is good in this world, what can you expect to receive in return? Well, Peter's response to that seems to be twofold. First of all is the, the hopeful response to it. We would like to think, and sometimes we find, that when we do good in the world, it is positively rewarded. Now, some of you are going to laugh at this to yourselves, but remember what Peter said with respect to the responsibility of governments in chapter 2, verse 14. What he said the responsibility of government is to do is to punish those who do evil and to reward those who do good. 
That's a responsibility here that is given to us in Scripture. I mean, it's nice, right? When you try to do something that is good, it's very nice. When people are thankful, when they are appreciative of what you've done, or perhaps even when they're inquisitive. You know, how come you did that? It was such a nice thing to do. I just, I'm just wondering why you did that. And the beginning of our passage seems to reflect this idea in verse 13. Now, who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? Right? The expectation might be that things will go well with you. Perhaps it's kind of like this situation in, uh, in Genesis, where we read about Isaac, that even though Abimelech was an enemy, at the end of the day, he saw Isaac continuing to do good, and he said, you know what, let's make a covenant between us. You know, so, so maybe, or on the front of your bulletin, I, I put there Proverbs 16, 7 in the middle of those verses, when a man's ways please the Lord, he makes even his enemies to be at peace with him. That's very optimistic, right? Doing good when your ways are pleasing to the Lord, even your enemies will be at peace with you. Sometimes that happens. That's very nice when that happens. That's not what Peter expects to happen uh, when you are doing good. Verse 14 makes it clear that there is, in fact, an equal and opposite reaction to the things that you are attempting to do. But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, righteousness' sake here is just a different way of saying for the sake of doing that which is good, the opposite reaction will be there. People don't like it. People resent it. People will attack you for the very good that you are trying to do. It may be disappointing to learn that. You might think that you can keep all of the enemies at peace with you if you just do that which is good. It is not biblically accurate to say that that is going to take place all of the time. If you're seeking to do good, whether you're seeking to do good at home, or if you're seeking to do good in school, or if you're seeking to do that which is good with a group of your friends, or at work, or within your community, you can be 100% assured that no matter how well you are doing, in fact, to the degree that you're doing better than you might have been, you can be 100% sure that people are upset with you, that they will react, whether behind your back or to your face, whether subtly or overtly, whether passively or aggressively, they will oppose you. They don't like it. They don't like it when you are doing that which is good. It makes them feel bad about themselves, and they don't like that. They want you to celebrate, to join in their wickedness with them. It's not enough for you to say, you go ahead and do that, I'm not going to participate. No, you have to join, you have to celebrate with them. That's what makes them feel good. Peter says in response to that two things. Number one, when that happens, keep doing good. Okay? Not, not complex, keep doing that which is good. And number two, Recast your thinking. What he wants us to realize is that it's not ultimately a curse. It is actually a blessing. It's a blessing 
That's what the point is here. When you are getting reviled for that behavior that you are doing, that is in fact a blessing and we'll come back to it. But there's more. Peter goes from behavior to the heart because there's a reality. There's a reality that when people don't like you, when people are trying to intimidate you, when they say all kinds of vile things about you, the reality that we don't want to deny is that that hurts and that feels uncomfortable and we'd prefer that that not be the case. Now some of you will say, and athletes will say, it doesn't make any difference. Rolls right off my back. I don't really care what anybody thinks about anything I do. It's really not true. It's really not true. It really does hurt. It's an awful feeling. And so again, we get tempted. We get tempted perhaps to give in, to go along, or to leave, or to lash out. And for Peter, these aren't just them behavioral issues, but they are heart issues as well. People can be scary. It's one thing to say, hey, no matter what they say, go ahead and, go ahead and uh, do the right thing still. But the reality is we can get scared. We can get intimidated by people who do that to us. And so Peter instructs this by turning to the heart. And you see it there in the second part of verse 14. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. That's what Peter says to us. They're going to come after you. That's going to be a reality. Have no fear of them or be troubled. And when we hear Peter saying this, you've got to know, we've got to know that Peter is hearing Jesus. The voice that Peter is hearing at this moment is the voice of Jesus. And we've got to hear the voice of Jesus through Peter as well. What are some of the very last words, not the last words, but some of the very last words that Peter heard Jesus himself say? Did not Jesus say, as some of the last words, let not your hearts be troubled. Don't let your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. And so Peter now is turning right to the heart, turning right to the heart that is tempted to be afraid, and he's saying, no, no, no. To quote Jesus again, Matthew chapter 10, so have no fear of them, and do not fear those who can kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Recalibrate your fears. Yes, yes, indeed. Somebody on earth, some enemy on earth can do any number of things to us physically. But the fear needs to be recalibrated. Our feelings and our loyalties as well. Psalm 56 is on the front of your bulletins. And I want to quote from it, but before I quote from it, right here on your, on your bulletins, just a reminder, this is a companion psalm to Psalm 34 uh, that is right in David's mind as he's writing. This is the other psalm from Gath. Okay, so Psalm 34 is from Gath. Psalm 56 is from David when he was in Gath. Sorry if you haven't been with us. That doesn't make any sense. But in any case, Psalm 56 says this. When I am afraid, and we've pointed this out before, not if I ever get afraid, not, I will never get afraid. When I am afraid, I put my trust in you, in God whose word I praise, in God I trust. I shall not be afraid. What can flesh do to me? Don't fear them. Peter says, don't be troubled by them. Instead, fear the Lord. And that's then where we go 
in the first part of verse 15. The contrary to that, to being afraid of men who are persecuting you, is but in your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy. Set apart Christ the Lord as holy. Sanctify Christ the Lord as holy. Here, Peter is quoting from Isaiah chapter 8. He's already quoted in this letter from Isaiah chapter 8, following on the sections on the front of your bulletin as well. Following on this section is where Peter will then go into quoting earlier about the stumbling stone, about the rock of offense that is there that has become Christ set in the midst of this world. But here, he's quoting the section that's on the front of your bulletin. Do not fear what they fear, nor be in dread, but the Lord of hosts, him you shall honor as holy. Let him be your fear, let him be your dread. Peter's not saying that there's not a place for fear. There is a place for fear. There is a place for trembling. It's are you fearful of the right person? The Lord is the one of whom you should be fearful and not these people who are persecuting you. In context, here in Isaiah chapter 8, what is happening is Judah is afraid because Israel and Syria are conspiring to come down and do a change of leadership. And and the Lord is speaking to to Isaiah and then to the king of Judah saying, no, 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 that's not going to happen because I'm going to take Assyria and I'm going to bring Assyria in to destroy that would-be alliance that would overtake you. Do not fear what they fear. Instead, fear me. Christ is the Lord. There's a beautiful setting apart here. It's the Lord you should fear in Isaiah. And as Peter makes completely clear, it is Christ the Lord whom you should fear. A beautiful equivalency of Yahweh and of our Lord Jesus Christ that is here as well. Let him reign in your hearts. Okay, so Peter's got two faculties that are addressed, your behavior and your heart. And then the third one that he turns to now is the speech, where we find in verse 15, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you, yet do it with gentleness and with respect. As we have seen to this point in this letter, Peter has been urging us to live our lives in various complicated spheres, quietly, gently, doing good in this world. But here, here, if you've been waiting and wondering, when do I get to say something, this is it. This is the passage. Finally, beautifully, wonderfully here, we are freed to speak the good word. It was, after all, a good word. It was the good word of the living God, an abiding word from God that somebody spoke to you somewhere along the way. And it is through that good word that we became a people who speak, a people who proclaim the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness and into his marvelous light. And while there are certainly, there are times and there are seasons and there are situations wherein it would be hard or at least it would be unwise for us to lead with speech when we should keep silence, there's also a time to speak. 
to take for the glory of God this incredible faculty that he has given to us of speech and of language and to employ it to share the reason for the hope that is within us. Because, remember this, doing good and doing good with a good heart, while that is a good thing to be sure, it will never be good enough to save the people who are around you. You can be the best at doing good, but it's not enough for anyone else's salvation who is around you. In its various forms, though, doing good while you are suffering will give you an opportunity, a strategic opportunity to speak. Suffering gives you a voice. Enduring suffering gives you a voice. Let's just look at it on a very general level right now, not a, not a Christian level, not a sanctified level. Why is it that Zelensky is able to address the U.S. Congress? Why do you even know his name? None of you know his knew his name six months ago. Well, you did if you followed the, the other episode with Ukraine uh, a couple of years back. But nobody knew his name. Why does he get to address Congress? And why does he get to address all of the world leaders at this particular time? One reason, suffering. Enduring the suffering. And therefore, his voice is heard in the midst of it. Now, that's just a general example. But what is being said here is that this is actually now sanctified in Jesus himself, when you do good and bless while suffering, it is so counterintuitive to the people around you that they may just ask you for a reason. They may just wonder about it. They may just make some kind of comment that opens a door. And when they do, you speak. You speak into that moment. Now, please understand that uh, our witness to this world, our speech is not restricted to only when someone asks. Peter is talking about here some very specific situations of suffering and of power dynamics where speaking in general is difficult. But the principle extends when you're doing good, when you're suffering, when you're enduring, these are strategic elements in God's plan for us to embody Christ and the suffering of Christ, and to get the world's attention. To get, in the first part of chapter 3, your unbelieving husband's attention. To get your neighbor's attention. Suffering creates opportunities that prosperity doesn't. It will give you opportunities to use your voice. Now, this could apply in a courtroom, right? In the book of Acts, we see Paul taken before leaders where he's given opportunities to speak and to testify for the reason of the hope that he has. It's hope, Paul's hope, that is on trial in the book of Acts. And this could apply to that. It could also apply to any of the great Christian apologists who have lived throughout history, who have written eloquently a defense of the faith, of why we should believe, and they've defended the faith with great wisdom. But I think that it's probably more specifically intended here by Peter for times when you and I are talking with the lost souls who are right around us. And what Peter is saying to us is when you've endured suffering and it's close at hand and somebody's coming up to you for it, be ready. Be ready. Anticipate that moment 
pray for that moment and be ready to speak. What does being ready mean? Well, maybe it's as simple as having a few verses that are memorized by which you can express the truth of the gospel. Maybe it's having your own testimony, your own story ready so that you can share the reason for that hope. And yes, he says, to be doing it gently and to revere the Lord as you speak. So don't be flippant with it. Uh, Don't be derisive with somebody as you say it. But watch for the opportunity and speak. Don't assume people don't want to hear it. Don't, want to, don't assume that the Word of God isn't powerful for the transformation of lives. It is what God is pleased to use. God has ordained to use your speech for the conversion of other people. And so, as we sung in the first hymn, and the reason why I want us to sing the first hymn, your loosened tongues employ. Hear him, ye deaf, his praise, ye dumb, your loosened tongues employ. That's what the command is here. The the suffering that we endure in the presence of the world when we are continuing to do good will provide the opportunity to use that tongue. Moses, when he was given this opportunity from the Lord, said, Lord, I I can't speak. He said, "My, my tongue, my tongue doesn't work very well. Can you, can you please find someone else to speak? Remember it? Exodus chapter 4, that's what he says, my tongue, it's a bad tongue. And the Lord's response to him is, who gave man his mouth? Who, who did that? Who, who gave you that mouth that you have? Who gave you that tongue that you have? The Lord is the one who takes these dumb tongues, sorry, these dumb tongues of ours and allows them to be loosened up for the communication of the gospel to those who are perishing and believe it or not, but believe it, That's what he uses. That's what he uses to convert people. And finally then, the last faculty that Peter highlights here is the conscience. So he moves then in verse 16, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. The Bible doesn't here view conscience as just something that a faculty that works kind of in the background passively. Instead, we're being urged by Peter to engage our conscience actively or proactively, if you prefer to say it that way. Use it to examine everything that we've just been talking about. The conscience, Peter is saying, is used to examine our behavior and to look at that behavior. The conscience is used, Peter says, to examine the heart. To look at your heart and the conscience, use the conscience to examine the speech that you have just done to make sure that we're not just putting on a show, to make sure that we're not just being hypocritical, not acting kind while we are harboring hate not speaking nice words when our heart is inside saying, you fool. Use the conscience. Invite your conscience into those efforts to do good, into your heart, into your conversations. And listen, I can tell you what it's going to tell you. Okay? Satan is going to tell you, you're awful. You should just give this up right now. Your conscience is going to tell you, you have sin in this. You have sin in this. And your conscience is going to say, repent, keep going, and turn to Christ. There's a difference there, right? Satan wants you to utterly stop. Stop using your tongue. Stop doing good. 
Your conscience will cause you to see the sin, repent, and turn back to Christ. All right, so to wrap this up, and let's wrap it up exactly where Peter wraps it up here as well. We've been looking at four areas where Peter is instructing us in how to view suffering, and he's instructing us in what we should do and what we should say. And as he closes this then, this little section that we're going through right now, he roots it not in us, but instead he roots it in the will of God. He says this, for it is better to suffer for doing good if that should be God's will. It's God's will. This takes us right back to the reason that I included those statements on providence from the Heidelberg Catechism as part of our affirmation of faith today. It's to take the suffering that we endure for the sake of Christ, for the sake of doing that which is good, to put that into the context of God's will and for Peter to say, hey, this is about God's will in your life being worked out, not just the exercise of these four faculties that he has spoken of. This is the recalibration of the universe. It is the recalibration of the universe. Yes, you are suffering. Yes, you are sojourners and exiles. You don't fit in this world. Yes, you are surrounded by ungodly and evil people, people who are over you, people who are pursuing you, perhaps like David, like Jesus, but like them, you are still squarely in the will of God. Those who are in Christ are still squarely in the will of God. You are not being cursed. You are being blessed. You are not being hindered from opportunities. You're being given opportunities in those very things. That's what's happening. You look at them and say, oh, if I can just get over this, whatever this is, then I will be able to. And God says, no, that's the opportunity. That's it. This is the platform that I am giving to you. This is the opportunity for you to share. You are in the will of God. Chapter 2, verse 15, for this is the will of God, that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Now catch something there. Catch the reversal. Peter has commanded us, watch what you say. Be silent. Be silent until you're asked. In the meantime, people are lashing out. They're using their tongues to revile they're using their tongues against us. And the promise is that at the end of the day, they will be put to silence. They don't get the last word. We do. We get the last word. Our loosened tongues are employed to the praise and the excellencies of our great God and Father. Our tongues are the ones that get to continue. If, if the tongues in hell are able to speak, they are only words of hatred that they speak. Whereas ours speak words of love and joy. Ours appreciate beauty around us. Our tongues are loosed. This is the mission that is given to us. To do good in heart, in behavior, in word, evaluated by our conscience. That is our mission. May the Lord grant us so to believe it and so to live it. Because if God is for us, then who can be against us? Lord, we pray that you would help us because we recognize that our tendency is to think other ways about suffering. 
And we have all sorts of things that go on in our hearts when we are undergoing suffering for doing that which is good. And any number of things that have happened in our lives that dissuade us from doing that which is good in a way that the world would be able to see it. And so we pray that you would recalibrate us, that you would help us to see the opportunities that are going to be set before us even this week, for surely they will be. And then, Lord, you made our mouths. So give us the words to speak at that very time in a way that will glorify you. In your name we pray. Amen.